There's a fascinating story that I found this past week that I didn't know about. And um, uh, it comes from this, uh, the time when Thomas Edison was uh, inventing the light bulb. It was during his early invention trials. And while Edison and his team was working on the first prototype of the light bulb, it took a team of men 24 hours just to put one bulb together. And the story goes that Edison was finished with the one light bulb and he gave it to a young boy who was his helper to carry it up the steps. And step by step, this young lad cautiously watched his hands, obviously frightened of dropping such a priceless piece of of work. And you can probably already guess what happened next, the... Poor young fellow drops the bulb at the top of the steps, shatters everywhere, and it took an entire team of men 24 hours to, uh, to do what it just took a second for a young man to, to destroy. And it took another 24 hours for that same team to, to make another bulb. And finally... Tired and ready for a break, Edison was ready to have his bulb carried upstairs and he gave it to the same young boy who dropped it and he successfully carried it up the steps. Now that's a story of forgiveness, of commitment, and also second chances. I mean, when you listen to that story... Uh, from a human standpoint, I found myself saying, I mean, is this guy crazy? I mean, my mind went to football. I mean, how many times do you give the running back the ball when he fumbles it that you give the ball to him again and again? At some point, you take the ball away from him. Or coach used to make us carry the ball around, you know, until you, you you could hold on to it. But Edison showed a commitment to this boy. And and really, he was, he was illustrating that he did not believe that, that this young man's past failures made him unusable for future tasks. And I don't think that there could be any better of an illustration to, to, to describe the journey that Jacob's family has, has been on. I mean, Jacob's family has so many past failures that, we, that, that they're lucky to even have a future. But God is committed to Jacob because of the promise that he made to Abraham. And when God transforms people, their past failures don't make them unusable for the future. He actually uses the past to prepare them for the future. And that's exactly what he's been doing in the lives of Joseph, in the lives of Jacob, in the lives, uh, the life of Jacob, the lives of the brothers, and as we'll see, Judah, who is coming onto the scene. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44, and we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're going to finish this climax of the of the story today. And there's a transformation that's that's underway, and we're learning to trust through, the, through this story, to trust in God's transforming power. And we saw uh, the last two sermons. God's transforming power in Jacob as he decides to trust the Lord. That was in chapter 43. We saw God's transforming power through Joseph as he grants grace to the, to the guilty. And today we're going to see God's transforming power in Judah 
as he intercedes as the substitute for for Benjamin. Now, there's a... Matt read uh, chapter 44 for us this morning, so we're not going to go back in and read it. But I want you to look back in chapter 43 at the very end of the chapter because that actually sets up what what we've already heard in chapter 44. In verses 24 and 25, you find the brothers surprisingly being invited as guests to to Joseph's to Joseph's house and they're they're treated as guests. They 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 plead their case before the steward who's at the door. They're skeptical, they're wondering what's going to happen whenever they go inside and when they get inside surely they are treated just as as they were told, they're treated as guests. Their donkeys are fed. Their water is given to to wash their feet. Simeon is is brought out, and um, Joseph comes home, and the the feast of the Old Testament fatted calf is is provided. Verse thirty two. There is a dramatic moment. Look at verse 32. Joseph set him a place by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with Hebrews for this is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright to the youngest And the men looked in astonishment in one another. Then he gave servings to each of them before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as theirs. And so they ate and drank with him and were merry. This is a dramatic moment because the last time that Joseph has been with his brothers at a meal, they were also separated. There's three separations here. three different groups. Joseph eats by himself, the Egyptians eat by themselves, and then the Hebrews eat by themselves. So there's a separation in the meal. But the last time that Joseph ate with his brothers, he was separated from his brothers, but he was in a cistern. While his brothers callously ate while Joseph was down in the, in the well. Now Joseph is separated from them again, but he is separated as the victor. He is the one who controls the meal and provides the provisions. And Joseph carefully arranges the brother in birth order. Now, they haven't told him the birth order, but Joseph gives them, sets them up in birth order. And to prepare for the final exam that we're going to see in chapter 44, he gives Benjamin, the youngest, five times the portion of everyone else. It's symbolic. It's a sign of favor. Can you remember any time back when someone else in Jacob's family was shown favor? Can you remember how the brothers responded to that favor? Here Joseph sets up the final exam by showing five times the favor to Benjamin right in the presence of his brothers. And the last time that happened, they hated Joseph. And following the meal, Joseph has one final test for his brothers to pass. In verses 1 through 5, you'll see the final exam. 
And you can put this under your third, third point. We're looking at God's transforming power in Judah as He intercedes as a substitute for Benjamin. That's where we're going to end up. But there's a final exam that the brothers have to take. It's very much like a, a cumulative final. I used to hate those in school. Didn't you hate cumulative finals? I mean, I wanted just to be what covered what was covered in the exam, the last things that I've learned. But a cumulative final is what Joseph gives his brothers. Joseph crafts the test that's not new. In fact, he gives the brothers an opportunity to pass the same questions that they have failed before. Look at verse 1. Now here's the final exam. He commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry. Put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Sound familiar? Now here's something new. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. And as so he did according to the word that was spoken. So he commands his servant, fill the brothers' sacks with food, what they came for, put their money back in the sacks the same way that you did before, but put my cup in, in Benjamin's bag. This cup was significant. It's a, Joseph references later continuing to play the role as the Egyptian when he talks about the practice of, of divination. This was the cup that, that was used for the practice of hydromancy, which basically they would take the cup, superstitious, and, and they would put water in it, and then they would drip oil in the cup. Or they would do the opposite. They would fill it with oil and drip water on top of the oil. And then they would watch and see how the oil reacted on top of the water whenever they were trying to figure out if this was going to be a good birth or a bad birth. Well, how did the oil react in, in the midst of the, in the midst of the, if you don't have God and you don't have His Word, you look at all kinds of silliness in order to try to figure out your future. You don't have to do that because God has given His Word with clear direction. But that's what the purpose of the cup was for. But more importantly, the cup represented the authority of Joseph. Joseph is second in command to he, to Pharaoh. And this cup represented his position, his authority. It was known as Joseph's cup. It was, it was his cup that he used, and it was a big deal. Look at verse 3. So he does as, as the word Joseph has spoken. And as the morning dawned, the men were sent on their way, they and their, their donkeys. And verse 4, when they got out of the city and were not yet afar off. They weren't so far away that they couldn't be caught up with, but far enough away to where it was clear that they were already set on their journey and had no intention of returning. Joseph said to his steward, Get up and follow the men. And when you have overtaken them, say, Why have you repaid evil for, for good? So as soon as it was light, the men were sent on their way. When they got a distance far enough away where it was evident, where they couldn't say, Oh, uh, you know, I, 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 I just discovered it and I was going to turn around. He waits till they get far enough away where they can't claim any innocence if they intend to. And then he tells his steward, Now, go overtake them. Now picture this. You have 11 brothers returning to Canaan. Successful journey. It's a very long journey and they're, they're settling into their trip. 
They have Simeon back. They have the food that they were sent for. They're bringing Benjamin home to their father. They were treated as guests from the man who treated them horribly the the last time. Everything that they hoped for and more has been accomplished. Jacob will be proud and will be blessed. They've, They've accomplished the journey. They are feeling good. Probably riding along, the only thing that's going through their mind besides how proud Father's going to be when they get home and how they can feed their families is wonder how in the world, Joseph, how in the world that guy knew our birth order. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's probably the, the strangest thing that's going through their, their mind. And then, all of a sudden, they hear some galloping off in the distance and a group of guards overtake them. And they begin to wonder what's going to happen. And they hear, they see the looks on their face, the face of the steward and the men with him. And he says, stop. Why have you stolen from Pharaoh's house? Is basically what he's communicating. You've repaid evil for good. Why? Why are you doing that? Why have you done that? I mean, startled, confused, downright shocked at the accusation. I mean, they went from settling into a happy journey to what, what in the world is happening to us? But how the brothers respond and how that response is different from before shows that God has done a full transformation in them. Joseph gives a final exam and the brothers' response and Judah's response shows a full transformation in verse 7 through through 17. Look at verse 7 because it shows a, a full transformation in the, in the brothers as a whole. Verse 6, So he overtook them and spoke these words, and they said to him, this is they, they're speaking as a group, it's all of them. Why, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look! We have brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then can we steal the silver or gold from our Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. I mean, they are confident of their innocence. The brothers speak with one accord. They swear an oath. This is an oath. They profess genuine innocence and and offer to be searched. Um, there are all kinds of TV shows about about police officers. There's the old show, I think the original one was Cops, and there's Alaska State Troopers, and I like to watch that one. And, and, and you'll watch them pull somebody over, right? And they come up to the window, and somewhere, usually in the process, if it's suspicious, the police will will ask the person, can I search your car then? You know, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. Just helping a, you know, an old lady across the street carrying groceries to the poor, you know, while they've got a bottle of liquor in the, in the, in the floorboard. And he said, well, do you mind if I search the car? And the, the guy who's there says, no, you can't search my car. I mean, what do you think that says to the police officer? (laughs) Guilty. Get a search warrant. Search the car. The brothers saying, search away. We, we have no problem. Look, look in our bags. We have, we have absolutely nothing to hide. I mean, we brought back the money that was placed there before. And he's talking to the steward. You, you, I mean, 
you've got to be implying, you even told us whenever we were talking to you at the door before the meal that it was God who put the money in the sack, the money the first time. I mean, you know, you, you put it in there the first time and we brought it back. Search. We, we, don't, we don't have any problem doing that. Their response is much different from when they discover the money on the first trip. Do you remember the, the way that they responded to the discovery of the money on the first trip? They find the money and they are they're overwhelmed. Their guilty conscience overwhelms them. <gasps> what, what are we going to do? Is how they respond. This time they're very willing to have their bags searched and they almost jump at the chance to show Joseph's servant. The brothers, different from the first time, don't profess how honest of men they are. They don't keep telling them, you know, we're honest men. We're, we're really, really honest guys. I mean, let me tell you how honest we are. I mean, they say, let our works be proven. If anyone's done such a thing, he deserves death and he deserves slavery. Look at verse 10. The servant says, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. You shall be considered innocent. Verses 11 through 13, Moses, the narrator, puts a lot of drama in here, slows it down. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each one opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and ended with the youngest. He searches in birth order and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, loaded his donkey, each man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. This is all part of the test. The servant searches in the, in the meal order. He searches in the birth order, oldest to youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. The, the same Benjamin that was just shown favor in the presence of, of the Egyptian authority over the brothers. The test is, will they forsake Benjamin, who like Joseph was favored over them, And will they also deceive their father and forsake him? Notice what it says here in verse 11. I'm sorry, in verse 10. Now let it be according to your words. With whom it is found, he shall be my slave, and the rest of you are free to go. That's basically what he's saying. No problem. Going back to Canaan with your food. And they respond in verse 13 to the favor that Benjamin has shown, to, to the potential deception of their father and the opportunity to leave him there, and they tore their clothes, first of all. This is dramatic as well. I mean, think of it. So they're pointing, they're on their way to Canaan, everything's going their way, and now they're going to be pointed back toward Egypt, walking to what would be their end and the end of their family and their patriarchs, they're going to be potentially slaves and they're never going to reach their families. 
They tore their clothes, loaded their donkeys, and returned to the city. And that's how they respond. You can't underestimate the despair that the brothers show here where they, where they, they tore their clothes. And it's significant. Can you think of something else that the brothers tore, another robe that the brothers tore, and what the purpose of that was in the very beginning? They, they rip, they tear Joseph's robe in deception and they dip it in goat's blood in order to deceive their father and now they tear their own robes in despair over their brother Benjamin. Look at verse 8 again. He says, look, we, we brought back to you the... From the land of Canaan, the money that was found in their sacks, how would we, how could we steal silver and gold from our Lord's house? With whomever your servant is found, let him die, and we will also be our Lord's slaves. The very thing, the very thing that they intended for Joseph, they're, they're willing to offer of themselves. In verse 10, the servant says, no, you'll be innocent. You can go. Joseph repeats the same thing in verse 17. This means that the brothers could save their own skin. But look at what they do. They tear their clothes in despair over Benjamin, and then each man loaded his donkey, and rather than heading for Canaan, they head back to Egypt to plead for their brother. What a change God has wrought in this family. They've been transformed as brothers, And Judah has been transformed as a leader. Here's transformation of Judah. Look at verse 14. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. And he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph says, what deed is this you have done? He doesn't repeat the accusations. doesn't have to. He set it up. What deed is this you have done? Do you not know that such, that such a man as I certainly practice divination? I think Joseph is just playing the role there, continuing to disguise himself for the great revelation of who he is in chapter 45. The dream again is fulfilled, isn't it? So Judah and the brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. That's just a reminder... <laughs> that God's in control of this whole thing. And Joseph speaks and Judah responds for the group and things are dramatically different from what Judah says. The brothers respond differently. Judah responds differently. The first time when Joseph told the brothers that, that they were guilty and that he was going to keep Simeon, they saw it through a guilty conscience, didn't they? They saw it as God was out to get them. And, they, and they, don't, they don't confess their sin. They speak amongst themselves. God has, has brought our sin to bear, brothers. And you remember Joseph leaves to weep because he can understand them speaking in Hebrew. And they don't think that Joseph can understand what they're saying. They're talking amongst themselves. They're not confessing. And this time Judah openly acknowledges God is uncovering their guilt, and he publicly acknowledges his guilt before him. Look at how Judah responds in verse 16. Judah says, what shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? I mean, he's still on his face on the ground. How shall we clear ourselves? 
God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also, with whom you found the cup. Judah says the same thing. The, the, the steward says, Joseph says, only Benjamin will be, will be held. He's the one who's guilty of finding the cup. And they say, they say no, we're, we're, it's one for all and all for one. We're here. And Judah doesn't hide his sin. He openly acknowledges while they didn't do anything this time, it's clear God was uncovering their guilt providentially. You know what Judah is saying here? The same thing that you know. Be sure your sin will find you out. God is not mocked. It may not be the very thing that you get, that you get exposed in, but God will expose sin. The first time they lamented, they were sorry that they got caught. This is a confession. It's an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. It's an acceptance of God's providential judgment. Whenever you were a kid, did your mom and dad ever tell you, uh, you know, you got a spanking for something that you didn't do and, and it was proven later that you really didn't? You know what my mom said to me? Same thing that your mom said to you. Well, you just got it for something that you got away with before, right? And that's what, that's what Jude is saying. We got away with it before and we're just getting it for something that we already got away with. But we're guilty men. That's what he's saying. It's a confession. There's no self-justification. I mean, look at what he says. What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? How should we clear ourselves? There's no self-justification. There's no blame shifting here. It's not saying, well, if you hadn't have shown favor and gave him the coat of many colors to Joseph, we would have never done that. If, if, if you hadn't give five portions to Benjamin, we wouldn't have done There's no blame shifting here. They fall on their faces before Joseph. They give no defense. And they plead for mercy. And Judah makes three statements. What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? He says, we have no defense. What shall we say, my Lord? We have no defense. What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. God has uncovered our iniquity. That's the second thing he says. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. We accept the consequences. We have no defense. God has uncovered our iniquity. And we accept the consequences. Do you know that's exactly what you need to admit to be saved? You may find yourself in consequences for your actions like I did whenever I was 24. You may feel great sorrow for for the consequences that have been brought by your sin. You may even feel sorry for getting caught. But you must become sorry that you've sinned. And that's the difference. You must come to God with no justification, no cause to plead, but empty-handed, bow before Him, crying for mercy. We have no defense. You have uncovered our sin, and we accept whatever consequences you come. Do you remember the picture in the New Testament of the Pharisee standing, saying, God, I'm glad I'm not as this publican. And you remember how the publican was? He was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what you see here in Judah and the brothers. I'm guilty, I have no defense, my sin has been exposed, and I accept the consequences that I deserve. 
because Jesus, Jesus says it this way, I came to save not the righteous, but sinners. You can't give mercy to someone who doesn't think that they need mercy. In a dream, Martin Luther found himself being attacked by Satan. The devil unrolled a long scroll containing a list of Luther's sins. And he held it up before Luther. Rolls out. And on reaching the end of the scroll, Luther says to the devil, Is that all? And the devil says, No. And he pulls out a second scroll. And that was thrust in front of him. And after the second came a third. And it repeated. Luther says, Is that all? And the devil says no, and he pulls out another scroll, and that continues for some time. But when the devil had no more, Luther exclaimed triumphantly, you've forgotten something. Quickly write down on each of one of those scrolls these words, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that good? Man, I would hate to think how many scrolls Satan could unfurl before the Father. I, I, I mean, sins that I know I've committed, sins that I don't know that I've committed, intentions, motives. Sin is not just actions. It is, it's not just what we commit. It's what we omit. It's not just our actions. It's our, it's our motives. It's our heart. And, and, and it is, it's deep. It's indelibly stained. It's, it can't be removed. It's, it's true and it's there. I'd hate to see my scrolls. But if God gave me the ability to look at those scrolls, what would be stamped on every single one of them is Jesus paid it all. Christian isn't without sin. They're honest about it. They're the only ones honest about it. And they can be honest about it because Jesus provides a covering. Though your sins be as scarlet, they should be white as snow. There's no sin ever committed. Too deep, too black, too numerous that the blood of God's Son can't cleanse. And mercy comes because a substitute was provided for what justice demands. God doesn't just overlook those scrolls. God doesn't say those scrolls don't exist. God says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all of these sins. He acknowledges the sins. God deals with the sins. He deals with the sins through a substitute. Someone standing in your place, in my place. And that's the mark that you see in Judah's life. He is a faithful substitute. Look at verse 18. Verse 17, Joseph dangles the bait again. Far be it from me to do so. A man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my slave. As for you, go up in peace to your father. You're free to go. Then Judah came near to him in verse 18 and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servants speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. 
Judah approaches Joseph with contrition and respect, and he intercedes for Benjamin. After chapter 38, Judah's name is not mentioned again until chapter 43 and 44. And it's now clear that Judah is taking the position of the family leader. In in chapter 43, Judah is recognized by his father as the one that the promise will come through. Chapter 44, he's recognized by the brothers. He's leading and they're following. And now, at the end of chapter 44, Joseph recognizes Judah as the leader as Judah pleads or intercedes for Benjamin's life. And the change in Judah, as I said, is amazing. Once a lying, conniving, adulterer who was concerned only about himself is now willing to substitute his own life for his brother's And he carries out the will of the Father just like Joseph did. You remember in the first chapter how Joseph got in trouble to begin with? The Father says, go look after the brothers. Your brothers haven't shown back up. The Father knows that the brothers have a bad report. They go up to Shechem and the Father gets worried about them and he sends 17-year-old Joseph and Joseph immediately does the will of the Father, immediately obeys. And now Judah is doing the will of the Father. Joseph was demonstrating perfect commitment to the Father's will and his brother sold him into slavery. Judah is now focused on doing his Father's will by rescuing Benjamin. He mentions his father no less than 12 times in this appeal. The Father, the Father, the Father, the Father. 12 times he mentions... The father. Judah makes a... He made a pledge to his father. He makes intercession to Joseph and he obtains a pardon for Benjamin. And the climax is found in verse 30. Look at verse 30. He says, Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen... When he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Look at verse 32. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, I shall bear the blame before my father forever. And here's the plea. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad. Please let your servant remain instead of the lad. Judah offers to become a substitute for the one the father loves. He becomes a forerunner to Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah made a pledge to his father. Judah made a promise to his father that he intended to keep no matter the cost. He was prepared to lose everything, his own family, his home, his freedom, even his life if necessary to do the will of his father. Sound familiar? The Lord Jesus did the same thing for you. He made a pledge to the father. He promised to do the will of the father. He came to do the will of the father. He accomplished the will of the father. On the cross, Judah made intercession on behalf of of Benjamin to Joseph. He pleads for him. 
This entire section, Judah takes the situation on his own shoulders. He stands as a representative for the entire family. He's not saying, keep all of us brothers. He's saying, keep me. I made myself surety. I take the entire situation on my shoulders. He stands as a representative for the entire family, for the brothers, for Jacob. And he says, put it on my account. This is not Judah's place. He's the fourth born. He's not required to do this. Firstborn Reuben has attempted to lead twice with selfish motives. He remains silent in this moment. Simeon and Levi, the second and third born, stepped up in defending Dinah, their sister, in the past, but no words from them. But Judah pleads for Benjamin with his own life. A genuine act of sacrificial leadership. His life for mine. What the song says. He intercedes on our behalf. It's what Hebrews tells us. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, goes before the Father with His own blood and intercedes. He pleads His own perfect life for our sinful life. He pleads for pardon by meeting the demands of judgment. He goes before the Father and says, Please let your servant remain instead of the lad. Jesus, even this very moment after the cross, He rises up in the throne room every time a truthful accusation is made against you. That's exactly what 1 John chapter 2 says. For the Christian, my little children, I'd have you that you sin not. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. You have an intercessor with the Father. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiations, propitiation for our sins. When you commit sin... When an accusation is leveled against you, when the, when the accuser of the brethren comes before the Father and doesn't just accuse, but rightly states your sin. Look at what Brian did. He has no defense. He did it. God, you see all things. You know the sin that I bring before you. You know the accusation that I make is true and accurate. And this picture in the throne room Jesus holds up His nail-pierced hands and says, Father, hold them guiltless. It's been paid for. And the Father says, satisfied, no judgment will be dispensed for a pardon has already been granted. Judah obtains a pardon for Benjamin. Judah offers himself as a ransom. And the transformation is complete. He's gone from the from being a leader to sell his brother, Joseph, to being the lone voice surrendering his own life in exchange for Benjamin. And John chapter fifteen, verse thirty says, Greater man, greater love hath no man than this, than he laid on his life for his friends. And John chapter ten, verse eleven, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A 
pardon was granted. Do you remember one of the things that you'll find at the end of the current presidency, there will be a run on presidential pardons, just like it was with President Bush, just like it was with President Clinton, just like it was the ones before. Because if you secure a presidential pardon, no matter what you've done, it's impossible for anything to be held against you or to be tried again. You remember Mark Rick and some of the other questionable pardons that were given in the past, but these people are free because of a presidential pardon. In 1830, a man named George Wilson was convicted of killing a government employee while he robbed the U.S. mail. 1830. He was tried and sentenced to be hanged, and Andrew Jackson, the president, wished, issued a pardon for Wilson. But Wilson did a strange thing. He refused to accept the pardon and no one seemed to know what to do. The president, Andrew Jackson, issued a pardon, a presidential pardon, and he refused to accept the pardon and nobody knew what to do. <laughs> what must that warden have said when he... When his delivery was objected, imagine something like this, pardon me? You don't want the president to pardon you? <laughs> the matter went all the way to the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Marshall, perhaps one of the greatest chief justices we ever had, concluded that Wilson must be executed. A pardon is a slip of paper, wrote Marshall, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. And he was. I read this story, and I said, this guy's crazy. He's a fool. And maybe I'm right. But millions upon millions, and maybe you sitting here today, Pardon is being offered to you full and free on the basis of the blood of God's Son. And that pardon will not be applied to you except you receive it by faith alone. Amen. Why would you reject such a pardon? 